Thank you. Good morning. It's a privilege to be your friend and to bring the gospel to you today. And I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Church here in Nashville. Uh, we often pray for every gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church in this city. We are stronger because you are here. Thank you. Now, our passage is Isaiah chapters 56 and 57. We're going to hit game film highlights through those two chapters. The key verse is chapter 57, verse 15. I dwell in the high and holy place, God says, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57, 15. I believe in revival. I value it and esteem it and desire it. I'm sure you do too. Revival can be misunderstood. Real revival is not something we schedule. It is a gift from above. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit blows where he wills. We're just thrilled whenever he blows our way, aren't we? What is revival? It's right here in chapter 57, verse 15. Revival is God coming down to dwell among us. J.I. Packer wrote a book about revival. The title was God in Our Midst. God coming down among, amongst us, visiting us in his grace and glory right where we need him the most. Revival is not God enhancing our okayness. It is God covering us at our worst, meeting us in our real need, and giving us his best newness of life for Jesus' sake. Now, this passage, Isaiah 56 and 57, comes at a major turning point in the whole book of Isaiah. In chapters 1 through 39, the first major section of the book, Isaiah confronts his own generation because they refused to treat God as real and to treat God as God. So God was unable to use them for his glory. He had to send them off to exile in Babylon. That confrontation is the theme of chapters 1 through 39. Then the second major section, chapters 40 through 55, the second major section has Isaiah looking up beyond his own generation into the future, near term and long term. Near term, the Jews will be released from Babylonian exile. They will return to the promised land. And why, by the way, did they have to return to the land? Because the prophets had said it's in Bethlehem that the Messiah, the Savior, would be born. So the people had to come back to get ready for him. And then Isaiah calls that generation and later generations to stay ready, stay open, keep standing on tiptoe, as it were, for the revealing of the glory of the Lord. Because that glory embodied in Jesus will come 
and the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus did come. He did bear our sins. And now you and I are waiting for the full display and the final display of God's glory in the second coming of Christ. And Isaiah looks all the way out there. He even foresees a new heaven and a new earth. Revival is a foretaste right now of the full glory of God. A foretaste. So that's chapters 40 through 55. Now, beginning in our passage today, the third major section of the book, chapters 56 through 66, the prophet shows us how to live right now open and ready for the fuller displays of God's glory and indeed for the second coming of Christ. The way into revival is not us, us polishing up our pretty goodness. The way into revival is the High and Holy One coming down and dwelling among the lowly because that's the only place He dwells in this world. Chapter 57, verse 15. So let's think the passage through, and I'm going to pull out some game film highlights through the chapters, okay? First, chapter 56, in verses 1 through 8, Isaiah paints the picture of God's people as they should be and will be. 56.1 Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Now, here is why that verse is amazing. The first part of the verse, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, that sums up Isaiah's message in chapters 1 through 39. Then the second part of the verse, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed, that sums up the message of chapters 40 through 55. So Isaiah is thinking globally about his own work, helping us to see it in its totality, what he's actually saying. Then, verse 2 sums up the message of chapters 56 through 66, the third major section. Verse 2, blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Huh. Chapters 56 through 66 help us get ready for the display of God's glory in these gospel surges along the way we call revival and the second coming of Christ himself and the renewal of all things. How do we get ready and stay ready, eager for the eternal kingdom of Christ to redeem this mess we've made of his world. We get ready and stay ready by resting. He talks about the Sabbath. Resting in Christ, treating him as real, more real than everything that's against us. What the Sabbath rest was all about, treating God as more real than the false urgencies pressing upon us in this fraudulent world. Jesus himself is our living Sabbath rest because we are so done 
with our own compulsive self-righteousness and self-importance. Now we want him and we have him. We've received him with the empty hands of faith. We keep on receiving him moment by moment with the empty hands of faith. He is our Sabbath rest and he helps us settle down and stop being frantic and we become calm and steadily confident in him. I remember reading a true story that was related to us by B.B. Warfield, the Princeton theologian. I think it happened during the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, though Warfield doesn't identify it as that event. But he talks about a Western city in our country, overrun by riots, turbulence, guns going off, buildings burning, and so forth. And he says the, the army had to move in. And two army officers were walking down the street toward each other. And one was struck by the other, and the other was struck by the first guy. They were calm in the midst of the crazy. And they were looking at each other like this as they walked past each other. And then they stopped. And one guy walked back to the other and he said, what is the chief end of man? Now that's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism of 1648. So in the middle of the riot, one guy asks the other a theological question. And the other guy says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the actual answer in the book. And the first guy says, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. And the other guy said, why, that's just what I was thinking of you. And Warfield's point was, people have a great sense of God in their hearts and they've got great theology and a great vision of Christ. We just don't freak out. We stay calm in the midst of the crazy when Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Now the real people of God live that way, are glad to do so. Whatever their background might be, whatever their story, wherever they came from, we are all outsiders who've been brought in by the grace of Christ, verses three through five. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, how could Isaiah be so bold as to say that? Because in the law of Moses, Foreigners were barred from worship. They represented paganism. And that point had to be made. But it wasn't God's last word to us. God's last word is a welcome for anyone whose faith comes to rest in Christ. So maybe you don't have a church background. But what matters most to God is that you come and rest in Christ as your all-sufficiency. He's enough. He alone. And you choose what pleases Christ and hold fast to him. God says he will give you a place in his family better than sons and daughters, so to speak, who grew up in church but don't want Jesus. So God is saying to everyone, come on in. To him, outsiderness is no obstacle at all. 
What God values above all else in every one of us is a simple heart for Christ. And he throws wide open the doors to all alike who will take Christ alone as their legitimacy, their place in the presence of God. So he says in verse 7, the last line, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God's house is big and colorful and happily united in Christ. And when we go there together, we are ready for revival. Here's a true story. Pastor Chuck Smith was serving a, a small church in Costa Mesa, California in the late 1960s. It was not far from the beach and just off, the, I grew up in Southern California. God began to pour out his spirit <clears throat> on the youth of Southern California at that time. Teenage kids started coming into church and they came in right off the beach which was fine, except for one thing. Off the coast of California are oil deposits. There are oil rigs out there. And little globs of sticky, messy black oil sometimes float up on the beach. If you step on one, it's so soft you won't feel it, but it'll stick to the bottom of your foot. So you walk into the house when you get back from the beach, and your mom will yell at you because you're leaving little black stains all over the carpet. These kids were coming that way into church. Now, this precious church had just sacrificially built a new sanctuary with wonderful carpets and pews and so forth. And these kids were coming in, getting saved, and messing up the carpet, messing up the pews. Chuck drove to church one morning and found a sign had been put out front. Shirts and shoes, please. And Chuck thought, wait a minute. He took the sign down, and after the service, he met with the leaders of the church, and they agreed together that they would rather remove the carpets and remove the pews that they had sacrificially provided if those carpets and pews were going to hinder one kid from coming to Christ. And obviously, that was the right thing to decide upon. They did it together as one. And that wise decision cleared the way for God to visit Calvary Chapel with revival. I was there when they were having services five nights a week to accommodate the demand. I remember sitting outside. There were no seats available inside. There was a sort of a patio with doorways open. I, I sat on the concrete patio, and I could just see the guy speaking at the front. It was not fancy. It was very simple, very honest, very sincere, and the Lord was there. And there were a whole lot of outsiders coming in. And you know what? <laughs> we had a blast. There's no joy like the presence of Christ. You see, the breakthrough came when they chose to care about what God cares about and nothing else. Not everyone, including the leaders of our churches, always feel that way, so that's where Isaiah goes next. Verses 9 through 12 of chapter 56, God's people as they shouldn't be, but sometimes are. 
All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forests. His watchmen, that is prophets, are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds, prophets and leaders, who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, for tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. So, what is Isaiah doing? He is contrasting the Sabbath rest of verses 1 through 8 with the self-indulgence of verses 9 through 12. He puts those two realities side by side. He looks at the leaders of God's people and sees watchmen who are asleep on the job and shepherds who are out for themselves. Now, I wonder, okay, but why are those verses even there at all? Why complicated? Because in every generation, this is perennial. That's why it's in the Bible. In every generation, we who are leaders among God's people, we who are in positions of trust, we need revival too. We need to ask ourselves, are we in this just for ourselves? Or is this for the Lord and for others? And if we have not walked in integrity, let's be leaders, let's be the first to enter into revival. Let's lead the way there. All we have to do is face ourselves honestly before the Lord and admit whatever truth he shows us there. Now that's chapter 56. Chapter 57, Isaiah looks around throughout the Christian movement widely and he sees two things. He sees both authenticity and hypocrisy. Again, the whole point is he's helping us get ready for revival and get ready for the glories of God. But he talks about hypocrisy. He puts his finger gently on that issue because the problems, the impediments to revival are not just out there in the world. But the problems are also in here, in every church, in me, in you, aren't they? How can we tell if we're walking really with the Lord? The key word in chapter 57 is the word peace, especially in verses 2 and 21. The chapter is framed with the word peace. The righteous enter into peace, their Sabbath rest, and there is no peace for the wicked at the end of the chapter. What is Isaiah saying? His prophetic eyes are discerning these two trends among God's people along the way. This is, again, a perennial issue. Two trends. One trend is the righteous disappearing. Verses 1 and 2. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about a godly person, a man or a woman, being overlooked among God's people, uh, being disinvited, exiled, ejected, persecuted, 
but walking on with God. And he is saying for that person, walking humbly with God, their life is not a disaster. The only real disaster is to lose our integrity before the Lord. In other words, if our living is Christ, our dying is gain. Now that's one trend, the righteous disappearing. Here's the other trend he sees among God's people. Spiritual adultery. Verses 3 through 13. Look at verse 7. On a high and lofty mountain you've spread your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. What is he talking about? God's love for us, we know from various passages in the Bible, God's love for us is not detached and cool and platonic. God's love for us is marital love, tender love, like a faithful husband loving his wife. But when God is no longer real to our hearts, we can start flirting with idols. And God is saying here, it's like getting into bed with a false lover. God loves us with a really wholehearted love, which is why the, the most meaningful response to him is to give our hearts back to him. It's why the most important thing about us is love for Christ. It's why our role in this relationship with the Lord is not control, but surrender. And it's a constant temptation for me, for you, for all of us in every generation to spread our love around in sacrifice to other gods. But we are the ones, even when we have treated him poorly, we are the ones whom he still loves and invites back in. Verse 13, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. That is Old Testament code language to say, God is offering us everything we could imagine. Our idols take everything from us and leave us brokenhearted. God alone offers and gives everything real and alive and desirable and satisfying on our terms, within our framework. So if you have in your life, if you've been trying to sort of force things to break your way. Why not receive life as a gift from God and start inheriting what you actually want? Rest in Christ. Let him prove himself to you. He is a faithful lover. And he even makes it easy for us. Verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. So God isn't making this difficult. He's not putting barriers in our way. He's breaking the barriers down and welcoming us in. And even if we have been treating him as a dead end, what does he do? He keeps the way back to him free of every obstruction, including our own sins because of the cross of Christ. If you've been wondering in your own life, how do I get back to reality with the living God? He seems more abstract and hypothetical and theoretical than he used to. He's, he's not as real to me now as he once was. How do I get back to where I really want to be? 
chapter 57, verse 15 is the verse you're looking for. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Where is God? Where can God be found? God is in two places simultaneously. He is way up high where we can't go and he is way down low where we can go. But he's just not present in the mushy middle where everybody's pretty much kind of sort of okay. He can't be found. So if we can't go up high, I, let's go down low. That's where God is waiting for us. When we humble ourselves, I think what the passage is fishing for is honesty about ourselves and hope in God. Both together. When we humble ourselves before the Lord and agree with him in the wonderful, gracious, glorious promises he gives us in Christ and agree with him when he points out things in our life that are hard to look at. When we decide, I'm going to agree with the Lord, I'm going to disagree with myself in order to agree with the Lord, that is humility. And when we go there, God comes and finds us because he was waiting for us all along. God doesn't value upward mobility. That is obvious in Jesus, right? God values downward mobility because down low is where he finds the people who are open to him. The key to the better future we all desire is not self-improvement. The key is desperation. Repositioning ourselves to say, whatever it is about my life that's not pleasing to the Lord, most of it I can't even see. I'm seeing the tip of the iceberg. He sees it all. And he's not going to show me all of it all at once because I would be overwhelmed. I would be devastated. I would be crushed. But he's going to show me one thing. One thing, for starters, as a next step back into alignment with him, back into the nearness of him, back into sincerity of heart toward him. I've got one step to take. He's going to show me one step at a time. And that step is going to go down, and then the next step is going to go down, and then the next step is going to go down. Well, sign me up.
because that's where the Lord is. And the further I go down that trajectory, the more of him I experience. Oh my goodness. You know the great thing about this? This kind of Christianity, we don't, we don't actually have to be good Christians to experience this. We only have to be bad Christians who want to grow. And that's me. I'm not good at this. I prove it every day. Are you? Could we agree on that? Sure. So, guys, God is not withholding revival from the Christian community in Nashville, Tennessee. He's not holding out on us. He has shown us the way. He has opened the door. He's putting no impediment in our path. The path goes down into the very presence of God in Christ. Let's keep taking the next step, whatever it might be. This lowliness of spirit. It's when the thought occurs, you know, being a nobody wouldn't be that bad. In fact, it would really be freeing. It's liberating. Because that's the one visited by God. That's the church visited by God. I've got a video at home about the, the Blue Angels, you know, the Navy's uh, top pilots. These guys are amazing. They did not wash out. They are the best of the best. And after they've done uh, an air show, it's all videoed because their lives depend upon coordination together right down to the second. And so they, after an air show, they look at the video of their performance and the team leader points out the little mistakes they made because so much is at stake. And according to this video I've got, their standard reply, the best pilots in the Navy, their standard reply, when they're corrected, their reply is, just glad to be here, sir. That's what Isaiah's talking about. How can God not bless that? A church filled with that beautiful humility is revival ready. And he will dwell there with gracious healing. Verses 18 and 19. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. over to Manual Church on the west side of town, here at Woodmont Baptist in the Green Hills area. Let's join hands. Let's go here together. There is no downside. There is nothing here we need to brace ourselves against or be worried about. This is not catching on too much. 
if we will humbly say yes to Christ one step at a time, he will dwell among us. What if revival came to Nashville? This city is a megaphone to the world. As Jenny and I travel around and people say, well, where are you from? We say Nashville. Nobody ever says, where's that? In the 1980s, Jenny and I lived in the northeast of Scotland in a little tiny village, and every Friday night on Radio Scotland, we listened to country music in the 80s. If God put his hand on us here, the world would hear about Christ. Can you imagine anything more thrilling? Let's get ready. Thank you. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we ask you to seal this word to all our hearts and speak to us, each one individually. Lord, what is our next step down? Show us what it is. Help us to take it. And show us your glory in that low place. We pray for this whole city. Oh, Lord, come and dwell among us, we ask, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.